Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Manager for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is the Nicene Creed. We're wrapping up our seven-part series on the Nicene Creed. And my guest in studio today is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament at DTS. Welcome again, Daryl. My pleasure to be with you again. Well, we're talking about the Nicene Creed today, and before we summarize each of the portions uh, that we've discussed over the past six episodes on the Nicene Creed, I want to ask you, just going back to basics, what's a creed? Well, a creed in this context is a statement issued by leaders of the church about what it is that the church confesses. So mm. it's... it's um, uh, the older term or not alternate term was credo, which basically is translates as I believe, mm-hmm. and then you fill in the blank. And so this creed actually begins that way, only the issues, you know, we believe in God the Father and in one God, and then God the Father Almighty, and it mm-hmm. goes off from there. So, so creed is a statement that is a shared confession of faith, basically. Okay. So the creed itself is an inspired scripture, but it's based on inspired scripture. That's correct. It's an attempt to define and put in a compact form uh, what it is that the church believes in this particular case about God, about the Trinity, mm-hmm. um, with uh, some additional uh, teachings um, uh, atten- appended to the end of the confession. And in this particular case, it was dealing with um, the tensions created by the Arian controversy and the idea of whether Jesus was fully divine as well as fully human, um, uh, which was something that had concerned the church over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So this creed came together to uh, clarify what the apostles had handed down because of people like Arius who were teaching things about Jesus that that were different. That's correct. They were teaching uh, they were teaching ideas that that Jesus was the greatest creature, and that uh, God had placed a lot of authority in him, but he was not fully divine. And so um, this statement was written really to affirm and explain. Uh, the deity of Christ, and then also to make an affirmation about the Trinity as a whole. That mm-hmm. was, uh, and so the bulk of it deals with that. Mm-hmm. And this is what the church had believed all along. That's correct. It, go, it goes back to uh, what the church was teaching and then compacts that. You know, the other reality that's in the background here is you're dealing in a culture in which many people were not um, educated to a sig- significant degree. What they learned uh, doctrinally was passed on verbally, what they heard, etc. So the creed is also a form of catechism, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it that mm-hmm. way, of, of teaching that the church gives to people so that they can understand what their faith uh, consists of. Yeah, and as people recite this uh, over and over again, it's kind of like the song, uh, you know, a, the lyrics to a song correct. That, that you won't forget because you, you do it all the time. Exactly correct, yeah. yes. Well, let's take a look at the beginning. There's a, a big section on Jesus, but we start out with uh, the Father, and it says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
And so right off the bat, this creed sets God apart from this category of things that were made, of created things. What are the implications of that just right there? Yeah, there are two parts to this beginning. The one is the opening line, we believe in one God. And then, of course, when we get down to Jesus Christ, the term God is going to be repeated. Mm -hmm. So the one God that we're talking about shows up in three persons. We've got the Father Almighty, then we'll have a discussion of the Son, and then we'll have a discussion of the Spirit. So all three are mentioned in relationship to that to that uh, first line, and then we get the discussion of God, God, the, uh, God the Father Almighty, who is the Creator of all things, and this is the distinguishing feature that marches marks out deity that mm -hmm. that uh, that God is the one who is responsible for the origin of life. God's the one who's responsible for the origin of the creation, uh, and this is this is a core idea of deity. And again, Jesus will be associated with this creation side in the creation creature divide a mm -hmm. uh, creator creature divide rather that uh, that then marks him out as being on the deity side of the line um, and not just on a, a human figure who was who was incarnate while well, he becomes a deity who was incarnated as opposed to merely being a human figure mm -hmm. and so we see a continuity then um, just right out of Judaism in Genesis 1 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and we see that again in Hebrews 11 that the things that were made were made out of things that were that were visible that God created the universe that's right and so we're, we're tracking right along um, coming out of, of Judaism with uh, um, this belief in one God who created everything so that everything that begins to exist owes its existence to God that's right everything that begins to exist owes its existence to God everything that is created and that still remains owes its sustenance to mm -hmm. that God as well um, and even though the creed is emphasizing the creator part of this, there's a sustaining part of it as well that Scripture talks about that's an important role in what God does. You know, sometimes we take the view, well, God, you know, in Genesis 1, the depiction of the creation is, takes place in six days and on the seventh day he rested, mm -hmm. but he was still busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was busy sustaining the creation that mm -hmm. had been created. And, and so there's this ongoing life to the creation, if I can say it that way, that, that God is ultimately responsible for. Mm -hmm. Well, help us understand uh, the opening language reminds me of uh, Colossians 1.16, where Paul's talking about the Father, and then he shifts to Jesus and says, He created all things, visible and invisible. So in terms of the interplay, are they working together at the same time? What one does, the other does? How does that work? Yeah, I, there seems to be an interplay between the two. Uh, God is responsible for the creation. Jesus uh, mediates that creation mm -hmm. to some degree. And so uh, I think Colossians 1 talks about this mediatorial role that Jesus has in the creation. All things are created through him. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Um, so, yeah, so there's this conjunction of activity, uh, which is common for the Trinity. Um, uh, they share in the authorization that's involved in the forgiveness of sins that's depicted by something like baptism. So baptism is done in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, showing mm -hmm. another cooperative venture, if you will, <laughs> uh, between the persons of the Trinity. So, yeah, so this is, a, this is an interdependent thing and what you're seeing in the in the shift of language in the New Testament by applying creation to Jesus is this this um, unfolding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the activity of persons of the Trinity 
in the activities tied to creation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this brings us now as we're moving into the Jesus part of the creed to um, one of my favorite questions, who is Jesus? <laughs> that's what they were talking about. Um, the creed expands on this idea of Jesus being the creator, and it goes on uh, to talk about Jesus. It says, we believe, um, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. And so how early do we see uh, this idea of Jesus being being called Lord, like it says in the beginning there? Well, it's very early. It's in a confession in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, where Paul has, uh, has a line where he says, although there are many lords and many gods in the world for us, talking about Christians, there is one God. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the Father, and he goes on to talk about the Lord. And what that passage is doing is is um, is playing with the language of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy six four, which was confessed in the synagogues weekly. It was the monotheistic confession of Judaism, and it it makes the point that uh, the term Lord that's in the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. is an allusion back to this Lord idea in in first in the First Corinthians passage, where lordship is attached to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that linkage also reflects a scriptural root in Psalm one ten one. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And uh, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Adonai, uh, Adoni. Um, and so, but it, when you gloss that over and pronun- pronounce it verbally in the first century, you wouldn't pronounce the divine name. So mm-hmm. you'd put another name in substitution for it, and then that got translated into the Septuagint with kurios being in both slots. So the Lord said to my Lord. So they're, those figures are distinguished on the one hand, and yet this figure who is addressed by God is given um, permission uh, to sit with God in heaven. Mm-hmm. And in the context of the monotheism of Judaism, that raises all kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. So this term Lord shared with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4 on the one hand, and coming out of the picture of Psalm 1.10.1 with a figure sitting with God in heaven on the other is a pretty big term. Yeah. It, it has, has a lot of content. This is where the expression high Christology comes from. Mm. This is a, a Christology of an exalted Jesus who has authority and who is divine. So is that what's being brought out with this idea of God from God, light from light? Yes, it's an exposition that's bringing out the force of what all that means. So these various ways of of affirming and reaffirming, just mm-hmm. to make sure people get it, mm-hmm. that Jesus is divine. So we get these multiple statements about, about God from God, light from light, uh, true God from true God, mm-hmm. to emphasize that point, God being pictured as light, that which signs, that which, which reveals, that which discloses. There are lots of ways to think about that phrase. But uh, it's all pointing and emphasizing the point, Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Lord, and he is God in every sense of the term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it prevents people from saying, yeah, I can sign off on the creed while holding to a lower Christology. That's correct. That's correct. The whole intent is to affirm and, and this is the bulk of the Nicene Creed deals with the person of the Son. Um, it's it's designed to get people to appreciate and and uh, affirm mm-hmm. their confession about who Jesus is in terms of his equality with the Father. 
Mm-hmm. Now, what in what's possibly the most famous Bible verse, uh, John three sixteen? We read that in this way, God loved the world that He gave His only begotten, His one and only, His unique Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it mean to be the only begotten Son of God? Yeah, this is not a biological term that's looking at a creature. That's already been ruled out by mm-hmm. everything else that the creed is saying. Uh, the idea of begotten can, can denote the idea of being unique or one of a kind, and it also can suggest, on the basis of uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, uh, the idea of being first in rank, of, ha- of having a high position. So, so this idea is he's unique and preeminent, if you will. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's a way of saying at the center of God's program is his son. And uh, and it affirms that. Mm-hmm. So Jesus isn't identical with the Father, but they share the same essence and substance. Yeah, this is the other key part of the confession on the person part of this this creed, which is, um, well, there are three points really. Jesus is God in the full sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Jesus is unique. That's the begotten idea, and Jesus is one in essence with the Father. This is the homoousion phrase, which was. Um, developed as a way of articulating the relationship between the persons, and homoousia basically means a one being. So, mm-hmm. so the idea is uh, what I call it, the one stuff. They're hmm. all they're all made of the same stuff in mm-hmm. their in their essence. Uh, they're all they're all reflective of divinity. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of uh, philosophically perhaps unpacking what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one, that correct. kind of thing. Correct. It, it's unpacking that kind of an idea. It's unpacking how is it possible for an incarnate figure who was a human being to share authority with God. Um, it, it's all designed to explain this this exaltation idea. And then the other thing that's going on in here in the in the biblical text is the idea that the Father is, is responsible. Son is always responsive to the Father. Hmm. So uh, it's God who raises Jesus from the dead. Uh, it's the Father who sends the Son. Um, and uh, the, fa- the Son only does what the Father has given him to do. Those, those kinds of, of expressions show the interrelationship and the functional way in which the Son and the Father interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jesus' lordship is connected to his, his deity meaning he's Lord because he's God. That's right. That's right. That's part of what's being said. So when we affirm this in the creed, we're declaring in the strongest possible terms that Jesus is God. That's right. And and you get a passage like Romans 10 where it says, you know, the one who confesses uh, the name of the Lord or everyone who who confesses that uh, Jesus is Lord, um, the confession of the Lord shall be saved, mm-hmm. that kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, you would say that and say, well, that's the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in the context of Romans 10, the calling on those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that expression is an indication of someone who calls on Jesus as the mediator of that salvation. And so, the, again, we're pointing to a divine activity and divine authority over salvation that is being evoked by that kind of terminology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's not a creature. Everything depends on him. Everything that came into existence depends on him That's as well. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Well, the creed summarizes now what Jesus did and what he's going to do in the second part of the, the segment on Jesus. And it goes on to say, for us... And for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, 
and was made human. It starts out with this idea of incarnation. We immediately think of John 1, 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it connects it to Jesus' birth. How is Jesus' birth connected for us and our salvation? Well, the the idea of Jesus' birth uh, comes out of this idea of the virgin birth that also is expressed in the Creed. And so this is showing, you know, God is directly responsible for the creation of this life. Um, and, 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 he, and so this child is both divine and human at the same time. That opens up the qualifications of the figure who's going to be sacrificed. He's able to bear our sin. He has the authority to bear our sin. He has the authority to give the forgiveness that comes from bearing that sin. All that stuff is wrapped up in who Jesus is and in the fact that he is both divine and human. Mm-hmm. And so the salvation is a, right off the bat. It's a supernatural thing. It's That's not from correct. us. That's right. It's not from us, and it's for us, and it's uh, it's a reflection of God's gift of grace to us. And the virgin birth is pretty unique in terms of the the, the culture where um, you have these Greco-Roman types um, of you know alleged. God, man, but Jesus is nothing like that, not like Caesar Augustus, for example. No, no. When you compare this to the Greco-Roman world, um, the Greco-Roman world um, elevated people to divine status, particularly emperors, as a way of saying this man managed us um, like a god. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a way of honoring someone. And they go to the bottom of what is a pretty full pantheon of deities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but what we get in the New Testament is someone who was God, mm-hmm. not elevated to that status. Right. And um, there, there's no pantheon of gods uh, in in Judaism. There's just the one God. And so the picture of being seated at the right hand of God is a way of picturing this authority in which there's one figure. He's at the top of that pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are very different concepts. Uh, and uh, in the What's going on in the New Testament is not is it's not merely a reflection of Judaizing some Greco-Roman idea. Mm-hmm. We have both Jesus' uh, divine origins and his being born on Earth kind of juxtaposed here. Correct, correct. What? And 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 Philippians two pictures this as an emptying, as mm-hmm. uh, someone got Jesus didn't seek divinity to be something to be grasped and held on to, but he mm-hmm. emptied himself, took on the form of an incarnation in order to to be a divine figure who also occupies a human body. Uh, the, the John 1 puts it this way, the Word became flesh mm-hmm. and tabernacled amongst us. And so the picture here, again, is of, of this preexistent uh, creator, Word of God, that now takes on human flesh and becomes Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we think about for us and for our salvation, why was it so important to highlight both Jesus' deity and his humanity in terms of salvation? Well, because on the one hand, on the human side, he's able to represent humanity, and on the divine side, he's able to bear the authority that is able to achieve uh, what the cross sought to achieve, which is to give us the basis for our forgiveness and clear the way to cleanse us so that we could receive the Spirit of God and, and move on into eternal life. Mm-hmm. And so by, by reducing uh, Jesus the, like the Arians did, how does that impact salvation then? Well, it, it just means that uh, on the human side, it probably doesn't impact it too much, but on the divine side, it gets into the issue of, you know, where does this author- authority come from? And Jesus did a lot of things in his life and ministry that uh, 
that showed that his divine authority. So, you know, we're talking about forgiving sin. Mm-hmm. We're talking about able to calm the creation. We're talking about um, making judgments about what counts on the Sabbath. In fact, he referred to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a pretty important day in the in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew mm-hmm. Scriptures. It's, you know, it's, it's ordained by God. It's a part of the Ten Commandments. It's a covenant. Uh, commitment and reflection. It's one of the unique features of Judaism. Uh, it, it's designed to reflect God resting on the seventh day of creation. I mean, there's just a lot of things going on with that day, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Jesus says he has authority over it. It's like saying, I have authority over God's day. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, another example is he changes the liturgy in association with the Passover at the Last Supper, mm-hmm. changing all the imagery to connect to his death and what he's doing in inaugurating the new covenant. So that's an exercise of authority for a rite that was, you know, that was memorialized Passover mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is going to come and change all the imagery associated with it and give it a completely new face. Well, who has the authority to do that? Mm-hmm. So, so there's just a variety of things that show who. Jesus is, um, and uh, and the text is um, the creed rather is um, uh, doesn't go into detail on this, but that's what what stands kind of underneath these confessions is this uh, the things that Jesus said, like I and the Father one, or before Abraham was, I am, mm-hmm. all the way over to the things Jesus did that pointed to who He was. Hmm. So on the divine side, then He has the authority to forgive sin because he is the eschatological judge and uh, to pay that that penalty that we couldn't pay ourselves. Yeah, and speeches in Acts, uh, particularly Acts 10 and Acts 17, talk about how um, God has appointed one to be the judge of the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. So this is this eschatological judge, this judgment authority idea that is, uh, that is prominent in the New Testament and is part of what is said Jesus will do when he comes back. Mm-hmm. Now on the, on the human side, um, Paul makes a, a connection between Adam and, and Jesus. Help us understand that. Yeah, now this is in Romans 5, and we get the contrast between those who are in Adam, which, is, which means all bear sin, and those who are in Christ, which refers to Christ's ability to create, uh, to redeem people who are fallen and to bring them into relationship with him, to bring them into the kingdom of his son, is the way Colossians 1 will say it. So they're just, the, you know, we're getting here a, a summary, a very compact mm-hmm. summary of a lot of scripture, basically, mm-hmm. in this creed. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the gospel unfold here. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to the uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, really the core of the Christian message here um, as we move on in the creed. So let me read this next section um, where it says, He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And so we're beginning to see the gospel unfold as we walk through this creed, and it's going to culminate in, in the atonement here. And we're going to take a look at that um, later on when we come back from the break. But before we get there, I want to ask about the, uh, the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Sounds a lot like this. Are they connected at all? Yeah, the phrase according to the scriptures connects what's being said here about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the tradition uh, to the teaching of the church. So 1 Corinthians 15 is very much underneath this portion of the creed. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Well, we see this as not just something that was created in, in 325 AD. They're very careful to hand down what the apostles handed down. That's right. The creed is a mirroring uh, and, and then an articulation in a short, brief space of a lot of scripture. Mm-hmm. How do we see this, Daryl, uh, as a continuity with uh, the early creed in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, uh, there are different passages in the New Testament that are really little doctrinal summaries. There are a handful of them. There's a, a, a phrase about the person of Christ being both divine and human in Romans 1, 2 to 4. There's the creed that we've already talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6 that's a Benetarian confession of the Father and the Son. Um, there's the little snippet on the Last Supper and the Lord's Table that's in 1 Corinthians as well and, and earlier on. And now we've got this section dealing with resurrection. And, and this, these, were, these were little snippets that were memorized and that were passed on that were kind of the initial uh, creedal statements of the church. And, and just going through them, I mean, one's on Christology, one's on the relationship of the Father and the Son, one's on the significance of the Lord's table. This is on the resurrection. There are others in the New Testament, but those are some of the major ones. And this one, dealing with resurrection, says this in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, mm-hmm. is the phrase that we see in the Creed, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So the point here is this activity of Jesus is part of a divine program that was laid out um, the idea of Christ dying for our sins according to the Scripture probably is an allusion to a text like Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. um, that kind of a text. And then the idea that he was raised according to the Scriptures looks to the idea of the restoration of the Messiah, that he won't be abandoned uh, to Hades at Psalm 16, uh, texts like that. So there, there, so there are texts behind these appeals that we tend to see in books like Acts in the speeches and that kind of thing that help and in the gospels that help us to see uh, where these what these summaries represent but it's a way of saying that the events tied to Jesus were part of a program and they also were revealed in the scripture hmm. and then later on in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says that if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead bodily that our faith is useless that's right why why is Jesus bodily resurrection so important because the redemption that we have extends to the entirety of the creation, including the material world. Hmm. So our bodies are renewed and restored and actually given a new form that allows them to function in immortality. Later on in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's the point made that we get an immortal body, that that, that uh, what, it, what is sowed in one form is raised in another, and that this this uh, immortality that comes on the other side mm-hmm. of resurrection is part of what allows us to live forever. And this really uh, sets Christianity apart from other world religious traditions even today, doesn't it? The, the 
the fact that the whole faith hinges on this physical resurrection. Yeah, that is a distinctive feature of the Christian faith, the idea of a physical resurrection and the idea of an eternal life. Um, these are unique features to to Christianity, at least in the way they are um, presented in terms of this ongoing, unbroken fellowship with the Creator God. Mm -hmm. And that really is the hope that we have. When it says, the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures, is that part referring to the Old Testament? Yes, yeah. According to Scriptures, obviously in the time when First Corinthians is being written, there isn't a New Testament yet, so mm -hmm. this has got to be an allusion to the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll finish up the section, the big section on Jesus like this. Uh, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And this sounds like in 2 Timothy 4 where uh, Jesus is actually called the judge of the living and the dead. Is the key point here that, that you getting into the kingdom of heaven all hinges on Jesus? Yes. I mean, it, it hinges on Jesus. He's the one who died. For our sins, as I mean, as the First Corinthians passage, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, mm -hmm. um, and then there is this ascension, which is God's vindication of Jesus. You know, what got Jesus crucified was the Jewish view that Jesus had blasphemed, that he had taken on a claim. Uh, to be related to God in a way that was offensive to God, mm -hmm. and uh, and so they crucified him. Well, God's vote in that dispute is the empty tomb and the resurrection. It's God is responsible for raising Jesus and, and his ascension to the right hand. Uh, and Jesus basically, before he was crucified, announced to the, the leadership when they asked him if he was the Christ and responded in positive terms. Mm -hmm. He then goes on to cite Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7 juxtaposed to each other. So it talks about seeing the one seated at the right hand and coming on the clouds. And it's, that's Jesus' way of saying, you may do to me whatever you want, but one day God's going to vindicate me, and mm -hmm. when he vindicates me, I will be sharing in judgment authority. You may think I'm on trial here and you're my judges, but one day I will be your judge and that mm -hmm. will be in the courtroom that really counts. And so, um, so that's a challenge. The resurrection ascension is the affirmation and vindication of that claim. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's uh, one of the outstanding features of, of what we call you know, the holiday we celebrate is Easter. And uh, and sometimes I think we miss the point of Easter because hmm. we 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 say he is risen, so one day we'll be risen. That's all very true, and that's important. But underneath that is the uh, is the one who does the raising and who are raised too, mm -hmm. and the vindication of the son. Easter is the vindication of the son. Everything that he taught and represented. Which means that that's what makes Christianity true, and ha having something to be that has to be dealt with. Um, that point is often go goes um, not so explicitly addressed on Easter, and it ought to be. Hmm, hmm. Well, it is His kingdom, right? So that's how you're going to get in. His kingdom will never end. It's Th through Him. That's exactly right. And of course, this is looking for the the portion that we skipped over, the idea that he's judge of the living and the dead, mm -hmm. wraps that all in a passage. He, we're given a resurrection body. He will exercise a judgment. Those who are saved, those who believe in Christ and are saved, will be preserved for eternity, um, and that kingdom will never end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier about the, the Lord's Supper and how that's connected to the the. Uh, atonement, not only to Jesus, uh, death and resurrection, but ascension as well. Um, help us understand how that is uh, seen in terms of uh, the Old Testament parallels, and, or not parallels, well, um, 
allusions. Yeah, well, the Old Testament background for the Lord's Supper, of course, is the Passover, which was the first great act of deliverance that God performed on behalf of its people. That comes in the book of Exodus. And Jesus portrays his death as inaugurating a new covenant, mm-hmm. as blood shed for many, as a body broken on behalf of many. And in this inauguration of the new covenant, we get a second uh, a second great salvific event, if you will, that parallels and goes beyond what the Exodus was able to do. So this is a um, this this is a, a greater than Moses passage, mm-hmm. if you want to think about it that way, a greater than Moses rite, and it establishes the arrival of the eschaton because in the forgiveness of sins and in the provision of the Spirit that comes out of that, we are evoking benefits that come out of New Covenant hope. Hmm. New Covenant hope was we provide forgiveness of sins. We would put the law on people's hearts. That's the language of Jeremiah 31. Mm -hmm. If you go to other texts, uh, running particularly in Ezekiel 34 to 36, the pictures of a sprinkling that cleanses the heart and the spirit is put within people. Hmm. So that's the idea. And and these texts talk about uh, when that happens, you're not going to need a teacher. Your heart cries out, Abba, Father, if you will, uh, to use the language of Romans 8. You know your identity and your connection belongs with God. Um, that's all part of this package that is depicted in, in very crisp form uh, at, mm-hmm. the, at the Lord's table and at the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Well, now we want to talk about the Holy Spirit because Jesus gave the Spirit, and we see the Spirit uh, already mentioned in the passage on Jesus. But the, this, the big uh, part here on the Holy Spirit starts out, uh, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Here we have that term, the Lord, again, which was applied to Jesus, now mm-hmm. is being applied to the Holy That's Spirit. That's right. And again, this is another point of connecting the persons to one another and the authority that they have is divine. This is a Trinitarian confession, so mm-hmm. we're emphasizing the deity of the Spirit alongside uh, that of the Son and alongside that of the Father. Mm-hmm. Where do we see the Holy Spirit identified as God in Scripture? It's a good question. Um, the, uh, the one way it's done is by the way the Spirit is connected to Jesus in a passage like Second Corinthians uh, three, where where the Lord is, uh, the Spirit of Liberty is there. That those kinds of texts that make the connection that way. The, there's the idea of the Spirit being sent from heaven through the Son. Uh, that points to deity, and, he, and in the upper room discourse, the spirit is being depicted as a person mm-hmm. who you interact with. So it's it's not just a impulse or something like that. It's not something impersonal. So all these things point to uh, the spirit as deity. Another key evidence is when we baptize in the, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They mm-hmm. all. Um, uh, it, it's all in their name that uh, this baptism takes place. So that's the authorization of a religious rite coming through the authority and part of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. All these things point to uh, the deity of the Spirit. Hmm. And we also have in Acts 5 with uh, Ananias and Sapphira um, lying to the Holy Spirit says to lie to God. That's exactly right. It's basically treated as a similar kind of offense, and so uh, it's another action that points in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So we have the Father is identified as divine, Jesus is called Lord, the Holy Spirit is called Lord. Mm-hmm. And so in this Trinitarian confession, we're, we're saying that uh, God is an undivided divine essence 
but he exists as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit simultaneously. That's right. And, and I think there's another line in the Creed where it talks about uh, the Spirit being worshiped and glorified. Mm-hmm alongside the mm-hmm. Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. This is another indication that you're dealing with deity because um, you only worship figures who are divine uh, right. coming out of Jewish monotheism. Well, let's go there. The next line says uh, about the Holy Spirit again, He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped mm-hmm. and is glorified. Now, many people took issue with this idea of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Um, tell us a little bit about the controversy on this in the 6th century. Well, yeah, exactly. It's in the 6th century. This, actual, this line is actually added to the creed. It's a reflection of where the Western Church uh, landed in the idea of the procession of the Father, uh, the procession of the Spirit from both the Father and the Son. Um, Eastern Church only believes in a procession from the Father. Um, and, and again, it's a way of trying to uh, emphasize the, both the, funct- the functions of the persons of the Trinity and the equality that exists mm-hmm. within them. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the Western Church confesses a procession from the Father and the Son, is to make sure that the Son and the Father are, uh, remain equated um, uh, in the midst of the activity. And, uh, you know, the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus gets uh, makes the point, well, I have to go away so I can send another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the picture is of uh, the Son always mediating the benefits of the Father to the world, and the Spirit is the vehicle through which those benefits get um, get distributed. Um, Jesus is the means by which it happens, but mm-hmm. that which Jesus gives is the Spirit of God so that the church becomes that which has been sanctified, set apart, and that set-apartness takes place because the Spirit resides in the church. And it, both whether you think about that as an individual believer or the corporate body of Christ, all believers put together, the Scripture will express that either way. Mm-hmm. And so even though Christianity has a, a roots in, in Judaism, when we hit the Trinity, that's where we have a, a clear break from Judaism. That's correct. It's very, very clear that, that uh, um, this is something that at least that uh, Orthodox Jews, you now Messianic Jews confess this, but Orthodox Jews or conservative Jews or Reformed Jews who uh, have theological beliefs mm-hmm. um, will will not go into the space that is occupied by the Trinity. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unique in, in world religions as well, even today with Islam. That's correct. And in fact, we didn't mention this at the time, but probably worth mentioning that I think had this creed been written later, the section on God the Father would have been longer. Um, the, the Judaism and Christianity basically shared the view of who God is as creator, and so they only get one sentence. Mm-hmm. But there's this whole relational dimension to God that is being expressed both in the relationship within the Trinity and as a result of the commitments that God makes to creation in saving it and restoring it that also shows a relational side of God. I think if this creed had been written after the emergence of Islam, mm-hmm. which has a very sovereign view of God but doesn't have these relational elements, the relational elements of God would have been highlighted uh, even more than this creed does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, um, you know, take a look at the Holy Spirit in terms of inspiration. It says, mm-hmm. He spoke through the prophets. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me of like when Isaiah would say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon mm-hmm. me. Um, is this about the inspiration of all of Scripture? 
Yeah, I, I think it's. I think it is. It's. It's. It is an allusion to the whole of Scripture, and it's an allusion to the inspiration of Scripture. It's an allusion to the fact that the Scriptures are rooted in a divine disclosure, which mm-hmm. then underscores why we can trust the Scripture, why we can believe it to be true. Um, all those things are, you know, these creeds are really wrapped up. They've got a lot wrapped up in all the phrases mm-hmm. and. Uh, and this phrase in particular has has a lot uh, that's uh, th- there's a lot riding on the back of that line. <laughs> so we have the Old Testament prophets. We also have uh, the New Testament prophets, like in Ephesians two. That's correct. Where so, Paul says that's right. uh, the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. That's right. With Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, that's right. of course. Yep. And now we move into the final section, which is all about the church and our hope. Um, it says that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now we can say this with gusto, but some evangelicals get nervous when we get to this part. Yeah, it doesn't say we believe in one Roman Catholic. That's Catholic right. is the term universal. We believe in one church. We believe that that every person mm-hmm. whom God indwells as a result of their response to the gospel, they're receiving forgiveness of sins, they're receiving the gift of the Spirit, are joined together into a family into into a called out community that's called the church. Mm-hmm. And so this is a confession of the idea that the church is rooted both in, in its apostolic roots and what the apostles taught mm-hmm. and that it, and that it's catholic that there's one church and it's a church universal. So whether I'm a believer in Turkey or in India or Pakistan or mm-hmm. South America, in Venezuela, in Guatemala, or in Africa, in Nigeria, or in you know deep in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> um, if I'm if I'm a believer, we're all part of one family and one community. Mm-hmm. And so it's the church that's universal, and it's also according to the whole gospel that has been handed down. That's exactly right. And and uh, I forgot to put Europe in that mix. So there are European <laughs> Christians as well. Uh, but yeah, exactly. There's. Um, uh, there's there's one church, there's one community, there's there's uh, you know Ephesians has all these mm-hmm. ones you know right. one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yes. Uh, that that's the idea of the Catholicity of the church and the universality of it is very much rooted in in actual several texts that come out of the Book of Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go there. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness. Of sins, um, like Ephesians four does say, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Now, historically, we know that Christians enter the church uh, through baptism, but how is this connected to Romans six, where Paul says we're baptized into Christ Jesus? Well, again, the Romans six passage depicts and is a picture of what baptism represents. You know, <laughs> we do the wa- washing by water. First Peter three makes the point. Yeah, we're washed by water, but we're not talking about some magical rite where this water does magical things. No, this is portraying something. This is portraying the washing of and the establishment of a clean conscience before God, Mm -hmm. that that sin has been born, that its stain has been washed away. We emerge from the water, uh, the the baptism pictures an emergence as a result of faith that leaves us clean mm-hmm. and that uh, allows us to have new life. And since we've been cleansed and washed, to use the language of Acts 10 and Acts 11 and even Acts 15, the, the picture is of a cleansing that then allows the Spirit to come into a cleansed vessel 
were no longer unclean, if you want to think of it in Jewish terms, but mm-hmm. cleansed. And, and now we can become set apart and sanctified so that Paul, when he writes letters, can address us as saints hmm. because we're set apart people who've been cleansed by the work of Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's not the physical act that saves us, but the physical has a supernatural element to it. Well, the physical act depicts uh, a theological activity of God mm-hmm. that we have um, moved into when we trust Christ and then the right pictures uh, what what emerges from that, what emerges from our faith is a cleansing, is our being justified, declared righteous, is um, a propitiation being applied and, a, and, a, and an atonement being applied so that we no longer pay the penalty for sin. God's wrath is satisfied mm-hmm. and, uh, and we're put in the position of being God's children held in his grip because of what it is he's done on our behalf. It's all about function of God's grace, and it's something that's supposed to generate a terrific amount of gratitude and responsiveness on the person on the side of the person who's exercising faith. Mm-hmm. And the creed finishes up with the hope that we have, the exactly. hope that we have um, as Christians. It says, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Well, what do we know about this resurrection and the life to come that's being referred to here? Well, the resurrection, again, then we're back in 1 Corinthians 15, is the provision of a, of a glorified body that, mm-hmm. that will not die again. So this is an eternal life capability that we're talking about. And the judgment looks um, is, is looking at the universal judgment. It's actually pointing towards uh, establishing righteousness uh, where – Wickedness is judged, righteousness is affirmed, uh, peace comes, new life is provided uh, in a in a body and form that's unfallen. Creation is restored. I mean, you can just there's just a huge list. I mean, yeah. everything everything that was right in Genesis one and two, and that was damaged by Genesis three, and that was um, uh, and that was provided for in the cross is now resolved mm-hmm. in this consummation mm-hmm. and in this restoration. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the Scripture uses the language of restoration. Um, this renewal that takes place that's permanent and fixed and complete and leaves no stone unturned. Uh, and so, um, so the washing is complete. Um, uh, though my sins be as scarlet, it's, they're washed white as snow. I mean, there are all kinds of texts you could apply. As far as east is from the mm-hmm, west, mm-hmm. you know, we can think about forgiveness in those kinds of terms. So, so um, this represents the consummation and culmination of everything that Jesus has done. And the result is this shalom, this peace, this establishment of justice, this establishment of righteousness, the removal of wickedness that. Uh, that is what everything ultimately is striving for, and when all the all the books will be balanced in the right direction. Hmm. Well, Daryl, how should we uh, think about when we affirm this creed? How should that affect the way that we live as Christians? Well, I think you know I, I attend a church that uh, that actually says this creed weekly, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's a it's a part of our normal worship service and. Uh, uh, we actually do it right in the – it's in the middle of our service, and mm-hmm. then we observe the Lord's Supper every week as mm-hmm. well. So we're doing a lot of reminding and confessing, and and I, and I think what the creed does is it, it just reminds us of the relational roots that are a part of our salvation. We're basically confessing the Trinity. 
We're confessing some of the benefits that come from what it is that God has done through the Son and what it means to be gifted with the Spirit of God living in us. So it's an affirmation that way. The creed doesn't do one thing, though, that, that I think is worth noting, and, and, and it's because of the context in which it was formed in. There's not a word anywhere in the creed about ethics, about how we live, about mm-hmm. what we do with our lives. Um, and yet, uh, and yet, in a very real sense, that's where this creed is supposed to take us. It's a reminder that God has redeemed us. He's redeemed us for a purpose. We become His people. We're to represent Him in the world. You know, the Westminster Confession, which is a, another creedal form coming later, you know, asks the question: You know, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to um, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, the, this idea that the way in which we live and the way in which we engage and the way in which we reflect God and how we live is important uh, to the life and well-being of the church. So um, this so this creed should remind us of the relational base uh, of God. It should remind us of the grace of God, mm-hmm. and it should uh, motivate us to live in a way that is honoring to God and uh, that reflects hopefully his character so that, as the scriptures put it, when you perform good deeds from people and you remind people of the character of God by doing that, people will lift up God and glorify His name. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Daryl, so much for being here with us and helping us unpack the Nicene Creed. My pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us as well. Tune in next time on The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.